Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. How can I break into Hollywood or advance in my creative career if there is no set path to follow? is by far the most common question that I receive via email, when I speak at events, or when I teach at USC or I teach online. Whenever somebody sends me an email or a Facebook message and they ask me, can I just buy you coffee and I don't know, pick your brain? This is inevitably the big question that they seek the answer to. Unlike doctors or lawyers, the path to being a successful film editor, writer, visual effects artist, animator, actor, or frankly, any other creative career is not a linear path but here's the secret that nobody tells you. There are very specific steps that you can follow to be successful, but you have to be willing to put in the time and take action consistently. The key is not discovering the path and then following it. The key is learning the proper steps to forge your own unique path. To kick off, I dive deep in what it really takes to break into or advance in the post-production industry with none other than USA professor and former head of the editing track, Norman Holland. This is a two-hour marathon episode, so get comfortable. This was one of the most downloaded and shared two-part episodes of my former podcast, but I thought that it would be beneficial to combine it into a single episode and feature it as part of the Optimize Yourself program so new people that are just discovering this show wouldn't have to dig for it because people have told me firsthand that this interview was the difference between them landing the right job or not landing a job at all. The advice that Norman gives is seriously that universal and that powerful, and it can be applied far beyond just jobs in post-production. And now, without further ado, my two-hour marathon interview with Norman Holland. So I am here today with Norman Holland, who really needs no introduction. Therefore, I'm not going to do an introduction. We're just going to jump right in. Wait, so who am I? Yes, well... <laughs> 
I wonder that myself all the time. Yes. Well, you know, you're you're somebody that's very prominent in the, the educational world and you've been the former editing track head at USC and you've edited large prominent films for Oliver Stone. You did Heathers. I mean, you've done a lot of big iconic films. But the reason that I wanted to bring you on the show today is there are very common questions that I get that I'm sure you get as well dealing with students and younger people. And I want to give them the roadmap and the place they can come to have those universal questions answered. And that question is, where do I start? How do I break in? Because I feel like and it's not that I feel like this is the truth. There isn't one roadmap that you can follow if you want to be an editor or a composer or a visual effects artist, whatever the, the job may be in post-production, but especially in editing. It's just this coveted spot that so many people say, I want to do that, but I have no idea where to start. And when I've told my story in the past about how I did all these independent projects for years and did trailers and featurettes, and then suddenly, miraculously, overnight, I was on burn notice and started doing TV, that discourages people because they say, well, that's an amazing story, but it's never going to happen to me. And what's important is that I can take the strategies out of my story so somebody can say, oh, wait, well, I'm not going to have his path, but I can travel the road the way that he did. And I want to distill it down into what I think are the core steps. And if anybody has listened to the past episode that I did with Monica Daniel that talks about her transition from reality TV to scripted TV, I'm going to warn you in advance, this is not going to be terribly different. There are certainly going to be specific ideas and things we talk about that will be different. But at the end of the day, this is not reinventing the wheel, that there's really basic, simple core concepts that I feel lead to success in this industry. And that's what I want to talk about. So it's not, here's how to be an editor in scripted television, do X, Y, and Z. It's here are core concepts that I feel that you can follow. They're going to lead you to success in whatever it is that you want to do. And I know that you are one of the greatest people to give perspective on this because you deal with students all day, every day, and you know what they're learning and you also know what they're not learning. So that's why I feel that you're going to be such a valuable voice in this Well, I hope so. I hope so. One of the things that I will say is that if you ask 20 editors... Uh, kind of what their path was to getting, you'll get 20 different stories. So the reality is, is that everybody creates their own path, but there are some very definite things that can help uh, versus hinder you. So yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of this. And it's, um, I think, by the way, everybody stop right now, go back and listen to the podcast you did with Monica and then come back. Yeah, I mean, her her story is so inspiring and I'm such a, a cheerleader of hers just to see where she came from and what she's done to get to where she is in her career already and where she's most likely going to be in the next three to five years will be way further ahead if she continues on the track that she is. But you're, you're right. When you talk to 20 different editors, you're going to get 20 different stories. And that's what's so frustrating and discouraging. And I went through that too where I'm extremely proactive and very ambitious. If anybody that knows me at all will know that I'm very ambitious, very intense. And one of the first things I did when I moved out to LA years ago is I just mailed people letters. I just sent them letters and said, hey, I'm a fan of your work and I'd like to know how you do what you do and all these different things. That is so quaint. That is so cute, right? Right? And, you know, I, I mean, I'd have to do that anymore. Now you can use Twitter and you can use Facebook. And we'll, we'll actually talk more about I the specifics of that later. I think we should talk about that. Yes. But well, one thing I wanted 
mention about your story is because yours is one of the 20, if you put 20 people there that you've got, but I don't think it's a discouraging aspect that there are 20 different ways with 20 different people. I actually think that that's really quite positive in that um, you find your own way to basically uh, say there's only one way to do it means the next step after that is going, oh, but I can't do X, so, so I'll never get a chance. Whereas if you realize there's X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, then certainly there are things that will work for you uh, as well as things that won't work for you. So I, I find it exciting to do that. The one thing that I sort of want to say at the outset, and I think you're a good example of that, and certainly what Monica did, is you hear all the time that this is a business where luck, it's all about luck. You got to be at the right place at the right time. There has to be a job that just opened up. And all. And while that's true, what I firmly, firmly believe is what you did, what Monica did, what I did, what almost every story has in common is everybody worked really hard to put themselves in a place where luck could work on them. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's got to be conscious and it has to be uh, thought out ahead of time. I guess that's the same thing. But yeah. you can't just, hey, I'll wait for luck to work on me. That is nonsense. Yeah, I could not agree with that more. And I actually did a podcast. It was a while ago now. It was probably a couple of years ago. It was before I started Fitness and Post. But Kanan, Alan Bell, and I all did a podcast all about the concept of what it means to be lucky and how there really is no such thing. And I'm actually going to dig up a link to that so I can make sure that other people can find it. Totally do that. Saying that it's about luck is probably one of the easiest ways to not do anything. Well, not only that, but it's such an easy excuse to give up and not do anything. Because um, I believe that luck is when hard work meets opportunity. And that's exactly basically what you just said, where if somebody looks at, quote unquote, my overnight success. They say, oh, wow, he's still really young and really doesn't have that many TV credits, but he's on Empire. Boy, what a lucky guy. He's so lucky to be in that position. But if I put you in my position and walked you through every day of the last 15 years of my journey from the first day that I sat in front of an avid to the fact that I'm now working on Empire, you'd say, ooh, okay, so that was actually kind of tough, right? That was actually kind of hard and now I get it, but all they see is the overnight success. But in one thing I wanna say again from the outset is part of the reason I brought you on the show is that I knew you were going to disagree with me and you've already done that once and I love that because <laughs> I said that having all these different paths is discouraging and you're saying it's exciting and you're right. I think we're both right to a certain extent. It's just a matter of how you approach it and that's kind of the, the first thing that I wanna get into is I wanna really distill this down into what is what are the Four steps, right? Like he has a different story. He has a different story. He has a different story. But what I really pride myself in being able to do is extract meaning out of things that have no meaning, which is essentially what we do as editors is we have all this random crap that nobody knows how to put together. And then you find the meaning in it. And I enjoy doing that with everything, not just with editing. Yeah, I think that that's great. I love what you just said. I love it because one of the things that I often say in my editing classes, and in fact, I even said it to a director the other day. I'm about to start to edit a feature. And so the director and I were talking about this. And one thing I believe is that as editors, we have to be conscious of the things that the audience is not conscious of. And I think the same is true for when we come to a, how do I break in? Um, how do I get the job that I want? Uh, you have to be conscious of the things that sort of appear 
uh, unconscious or subconscious uh, ultimately. So yeah, purpose I think is the most important aspect here that I think we should probably talk about. Absolutely. And that is exactly the place that I wanted to start is if you're thinking, well, am I supposed to have my resume? Should I be sending it to people? Should I be making phone calls? Should I be going to events? Like what, what are all these things I need to be doing? What you've done is you've got yourself into tactical hell. You're trying to figure out what are all these tactics that I need to be doing? Well, Zach Arnold said that he got his job on burn notice on Facebook. So I should be Facebook stalking everybody. Side note, don't Facebook stalk people. <laughs> Um, especially you now. Right? Especially me, right? Yeah, I've, I've, but no, it, that's actually not what I'm saying at all. But the, the first place that I pe feel that people really need to settle into and spend time, and this is what I tell every either still college student or recent graduate that will reach out to me, I'll say, before you do anything, you need to start focusing on your intention. You need to actually figure out what is it that you want to do. And that freaks a lot of people out because they say, well, I don't know what I want to do. And the great news is you don't have to have the answer, but you need to have a answer. And the reason that I say this is that if you decide that, oh, well, I want to be Zach Arnold and I want to edit Empire five years from now, and you just graduated from college, it's not going to happen. That's not a realistic goal. But if you're saying that's where you want to be eventually, that's great. But if you're just saying, I will do anything, I just want to edit, what will most likely happen, and this comes from me speaking to a lot of people that I've seen this happen to, is they get a job, it doesn't matter what it is, and they're at the bottom and they're either in a, the vault or they're logging tapes at night or they're, I guess nobody digitizes anymore. I just really dated myself saying that. Because <laughs> um, I remember people that were like popping in tapes and digitizing and nobody's really doing that. But there are still loggers that are taking all the, the cards and organizing them and naming clips and all that. But you're gonna start somewhere and you're thinking, well, it's just a starter job. It just, it gets me an A door. But what you have to realize is that if you're really, really good at what you do, you're going to start climbing a ladder. And if you start climbing a ladder that you don't want to be on, when you get to the top of that ladder, you don't want to jump off it either, but you're not on the right one. Well, let's let's actually step back for one second. Before we talk about the ladder, let's climbing that ladder, let's talk about what wall we put the ladder against first. Ooh, that's so, even better analogy. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just following your lead here. So that for me, I think, um, and there are certain tricks that I think that can help everybody focus and do this, because I think your uh, idea about focusing your mind, focusing your mindset is really, really very key here. So one of the things that I do when I talk that in my classes or in other talks that I'll give about looking for a job is one of the first things to do is to figure out where your skills are and where they're not and what kind of uh, things people are looking for. And what I like to do, I actually draw three circles, sort of overlap like a Venn diagram, and that one of the circles is the skills that you have. And I think this is the homework that you must do in order to prepare yourself for even putting a resume together, for putting a reel together. You can't do that without doing this homework first. So you have a circle, which is the skills that you have. So go through every project you've ever worked on and say, what did I do there? And there are things that I guarantee you, you did that you don't even realize are skills. 
So assistant editor's like, oh, yeah, well, I sunk dailies. It's like, yeah, okay, you sunk dailies. But from what cameras and how many different cameras and what were the problems in sinking those dailies? Oh, God, there were no slates on it. Yes, yeah, so you sunk dailies on difficult projects. Okay, there's a skill you have. And you go down through every single one of my students uh, often work off of uh, an ISA shared storage because we, we do a lot of work on, on Avid. And uh, they just don't think a second thing about it. And I say, do you know how many people don't do that in school? So for you, that's a skill you have you don't even know you have. And I think the same is true for all students or all people who haven't even been students but are looking to start. You have skills you don't know. You speak Spanish and the next person doesn't. You have a background in uh, uh, sciences and someone else doesn't. Those are your skills. You were responsible in a previous job for on-time delivery of something. That's a skill. Working with people, that's a skill. So getting specific about what those skills are are the first circle. Yeah, and I think that's a really, really great point that most people will come out of film school or come out of just high school and not having gone to, to college or whatever it is, wanting to get into the business or they're 45 years old and they decided, I hate being a lawyer and I want to get into film. I'm right. sure you've seen a couple of students like that. I've had a couple of students Absolutely. at USC that were mid to late 40s, worked you know, in medical field or some other field. And they're like, I just want to be creative. I just hate what I've been doing for 20 years and I want to have fun. And they're like, well, I don't have any skills, right? Or even students will come out of USC and feel like they don't have certain skills or whatever it is. I know that um, it's, it's very common for students coming out of the University of Michigan to think, well, I don't have any skills. I, I haven't been properly trained for working in the industry. And I will be the first to admit, I thought the exact same thing. Because to me, when I was in school, it was all about, well, show me how to use Avid. Show me how to use Final Cut. Like, I want to learn how to press the buttons. And I want to know, how do I import? How do I use After Effects? And that's what's going to get me work, right? And that is the bogus part about this, that like skills are sometimes equated with software and hardware. And while that is part of it, the basic thing, and, and you've seen this certainly in the last 10 years, that what was a well-established, never-going-anywhere piece of hardware in five years is gone. So knowing a piece of hardware is the least of what it is. Knowing how to adapt to new hardware, new software, that's a much bigger and more important skill in the 21st century we've got. So the fact that you've transitioned from, I mean, like I did, I transitioned from 35 millimeter film to uh, Lightworks, to Ediflex, to Avid, to uh, Final Cut, and, and done all of that. It's not the tool, it's that I'm flexible enough to go with whatever tool makes sense. Yeah, and I think the biggest tool that I walked away with from the University of Michigan, when I go back and I'll speak every one or two years and just do like an assembly and talk to people about what it's like to get into the business. And they all say the same thing. Well, all I do is watch Potemkin and, and write papers and God, it's like, <laughs> I just want to touch the equipment. And I say to them, listen, I went through the exact same thing. I had the same angst. I was very frustrated. I was an autodidact where I would just buy books and I would learn After Effects and learn Final Cut. And I knew them better than my professors by my senior year because that's all I did is learn the technology because there were no courses for it. But what I discovered very, very quickly, and I feel like we've we've veered kind of into the, the second level of this conversation, which is more about building a skill set, but that's fine. We can always edit it. Um, mm -hmm. But what I found is that when edit. I- what's that? I right. forget. Never mind. Um, but when I got out into the world, I- 
knew a thing or two about Final Cut Pro, which is obviously the old version because that was what I'd spend most of my time on. And I knew Avid, okay. But I was working with other people that went to schools where they knew so much more about the technology. And I was like, oh my God, I just spent four years at the University of Michigan and I feel like I'm so far behind. But then I found that I started to move ahead very, very quickly because of my knowledge of story and film theory. And that is a skill set that is just taken- I am so glad you said that because one of the things I just told a prospective student at USC today when she came in to, to talk to me was I am super proud that we have no classes whatsoever at USC that say how to use Final Cut, how to use Avid, how to use Adobe. All of our classes are story-centered. All of our classes are about you might even call them soft skills, though I don't call them that. Uh, the skills of, I can tell your story better than the next person. And while, that, while we certainly teach the tools, it's got to be in service of something else. Because that's what every single studio head who's spoken about this says. That what's of value to them are people who know how to shape stories better than the next person, as opposed to someone who knows how to use the tool, use the tool better than the next person. So you're absolutely right. And there's no question that's a skill set. What I want to do is go backwards a little bit because you and I always have this tendency to just jump in and get so overzealous. But And I haven't done the other two circles yet. So I wow. know, right? So, we, right, right, so right. We, so we need to go back to your, your circles, but kind of get back into the, the conversation about mindset and purpose and intention. And I think that's where your next circles go. So let's go back to that. That's where I want to head with this too because I think that's super important. So the second circle that overlaps more or less with the first circle is the skills that an employer might be looking for, right? So if they are looking for, they have a film in which half of it is in Spanish, they may be looking for someone who speaks Spanish, right? So, oh, wow, I speak Spanish, so that's cool. So there's an overlap. And the reality is, is if you have those two circles and there's just the teeniest, tiniest overlap, then you're looking for the wrong jobs, right? Because the first thing you want to do is to really figure out the path you want to go on, as you said, right? So you're either looking for the wrong jobs or you haven't developed the skills to go for the jobs that you are looking for. And then here's the third one, and I know you'll love this one, Zach, is the third circle. And this is something that my wife, who's a career consultant, taught me. The third circle is what your own personal needs are. So if your personal needs are, I need to be home at nine o'clock because I have this family thing. And even to say nine o'clock is absurd that that's like early, right? uh, But I need to um, have a job with a health plan because um, I have uh, certain health issues. Or I need to have a job in which uh, I don't travel a lot because that's, I don't like traveling or whatever it is, what your needs are, you have to take that into account because if you are not happy in where you are moving, you will not do a good job. That job will not be for you. So when you combine those three things 
And and by the way, I I always suggest relooking at those three things in a detailed way every six months or so because your life changes. Well, and the, what I really want to add to that, which is going to feed perfectly into where I wanted to go with this first part of the conversation, is you're talking very much about needs that intersect with the job, which is healthcare or family or free time or my health is a priority, whatever it is. But I think what also absolutely has to belong in that circle goes back to the very first question, which is what is your focus and attention for what you want to do? And if you're saying, like, I think the easiest way for me to do this rather than just kind of talk about it is to give my own example. I didn't know about the three circles, but when I think back to what I did when I first graduated, I pretty much did a very similar mindset where even before I graduated, I said, all right, well, what I really want to do is I want to edit feature films. I want to do storytelling. I want to do long form narrative, although I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. But now looking back, I wanted to be a long form narrative editor and do feature films. So I was saying to myself, I'm not going to take a job as a logger assistant at MTV because that's not going to get me anywhere. I'm not going to take a job. There really wasn't a lot of reality back then, which once again, dating myself, people are like, oh my God, there's a time without reality television. It actually wasn't that long ago. <laughs> Seems like a long time ago. But I, I knew that what I wanted was to eventually work on major feature films. So I wasn't even looking at jobs that didn't get me towards that end. And that didn't mean that unless the job was an assistant editor on a studio film, I wouldn't even acknowledge it. But the perfect example is my first job was an assistant editor at a trailer house. And you would say, well, what does editing trailers have to do with long form features? Well, I'm learning how to tell a story I'm learning how to do it in a much shorter period of time, which is actually a much harder skill set to develop. And I get to work with rough cuts of feature films all day long. And that to me was literally, I was Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money when I started seeing rough cuts of major feature films. I'm like, oh my God, I get to reverse engineer a movie and see how they put it together. This is so cool. Yeah, a lot to learn there. A lot so to much learn. to learn from seeing rough cuts and then seeing them develop. I learned so much just by being an assistant an editor and then an editor doing trailers because I watched the process of long form storytelling. So was I in exactly the job that was the exact right ladder? No, but my intention was very, very clear that I wanted to develop the knowledge and skills to be able to work on long form projects. And because that intention was so clear, once you start to put it out there, things start to come to you because you're attracting that type of energy. And within two years of editing a trailer through a random connection of a connection, somebody was looking for or somebody that could cut two sample scenes for a film that needed more financing because they were they had shot half the movie and ran out of money, but they also needed a trailer to go with it. So I said, well, hey, I'm a professional trailer editor. I just did the campaign for Passion of the Christ. I'm, this is what I do professionally for a living. I'm like, oh, that's great. Well, let us give you one scene and we'll kind of do it as a test. And if it works, then we'll have you do the two main scenes of the film and do the trailer for us. And within a week, they said, oh my God, like, this is perfect, this is exactly what we want, we love the scenes, we want you to cut the whole film. This is two years out of school. But because my intention was clear, that was the path that I was on, and had I decided to take a higher paying job, maybe even editing, like a perfect example would be, there was a, a couple of PBS shows that I worked on on the side, where I was uh, just working on those to gain extra money, there were more opportunities to do that type of work, and I turned it down because it wasn't on the correct path or on the right ladder for me to climb, but now that I had this feature film, I had to make the decision, well, I have this really good paying trailer job or I can make $500 a week flat fee to edit an independent feature. 
And I walked into my boss and I said, this is my 30 day notice, I'm out. This is what I wanna do for a living and I don't wanna wake up in 10 years having a mortgage and two young kids and working at a job that I hate. Right, so you just said, by the way, you just said about four important things in my mind, right? So three or four important things. And then one of which that I think would be really good to kind of highlight, to focus on is how do you know what you wanna do? And there's a guy who I often bring into my class uh, my advanced editing class to talk, because these are students about to leave school, um, a guy named Stephen Mead. And he knows nothing about film, but what he does know, he says, is basically how to get to anybody because he is organized. He has something called the tornado technique in which he helps people to identify who to go to, who to find, who could be helpful, to entrepreneurs or helpful to whatever, but key to there is to be specific. So he'll ask the students, what do you want to do? I want to direct. That's it? That's all you want to tell me? Yeah, I want to direct. Well, what kinds of things do you want to direct? He'll say to them, uh, well, I guess feature films. What kind of feature films do you want to do? Do you want to do low-budget independent ones? Do you want to do, like, what's the subject matter? What types of things? So the idea of, at least for today, getting some specificity in there helps you to focus your mind. And then when you combine that with what your skills are, then what I think is, is the next step, and I know this is what you did uh, as sort of next steps, is to figure out where you, where you think you'd like to be in five years, let's say. But, that's, and, but you can't do anything with that. That's still scary. That's ridiculous. Five years, okay, I want to be editing uh, uh, studio feature films in five years, right? Uh, well, okay, so where do you need to be in one year in order to get to that place in five years? Uh, well, I guess I should be editing some low-budget things. Or maybe I should be assisting on something. Or maybe I should be a uh, post-PA. Uh, okay, but that's still kind of hard. So what do I need to be doing in six months in order to get to that one year, in order to get to that five years from now. And now you can deal with it. I need to meet 20 people who are assistant editors on films that I like. Right? So that establishes, and, and by the way, you, you relook at this constantly. You look at it every six months because any number of those steps might change. But uh, where are you? So, okay, your choice was to, you were doing assistant at a trailer house. That, to me is an ideal thing for you. But it, but it doesn't mean that someone else's path while they decided I want to be a post-PA on something else is wrong or incorrect for them. And it doesn't mean that they won't be able to marshal the energy in the direction to take that job and move it in the direction they want. But you have to know the direction you want. You just can't let luck work on you. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found 
bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they use this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Absolutely. And I think that one of the daunting things about that is the same thing that all college students go through is, oh, my God, I have to pick a major now. Right. So you're thinking, oh, my God, I have to pick a path. And I think it's very important to reiterate again that it doesn't have to be the path for 10 years, 15 years or 30 years. Those days are gone. You don't start at the bottom of a company in the mailroom and then end up the CEO in 30 years. That world doesn't exist anymore. So the path is much more malleable. And I'll continue with my story to explain how malleable it can be. Because first of all, I was told when I was a trailer editor and I was, I always make my intentions very clear to people that I work with. This is always, there's a little bit of a tangent, but whenever an assistant editor will come up to me and say, how do I break out from an assistant to being an editor? And I'm actually planning a whole show about this sometime in the future. But I always say, you have to be a great assistant first and then you have to make it very clear to people you don't want to be an assistant and you want to cut. Because if you're just a great assistant and you don't, make your intentions clear. Nobody is ever going to take the initiative to move you up. But if you all you do is make your intention clear and you suck at what you do, nobody's going to want to give you the opportunity. Right. So you have to make both of those things clear. But I always made my intention clear. I want to work on features. I want to cut long form. I don't want to be a trailer editor for the next 15 years. And everybody told me the same thing. Well, short form people don't break into long form. They're two different skill sets and you can't do them. So then when I started doing features, all of a sudden people were saying, oh wait, you do trailers and features? Well, that's a really unique skill set. So then I would end up doing all of the marketing work for all of the independent films that I was working on. So on my reel or on my resume, I would say trailer and feature and that would get people's attention. And because of that, I started moving up quickly and then I hit what I thought was going to be pay dirt where I'm like, yes, I have succeeded, I've done it, I'm there. And I know this is a story you've heard and I've, I've told it on other podcasts, but I don't think I've actually told it on this one, but I was very, very close in the running to edit 500 Days of Summer. Like really close, like to the point where I was meeting with studio heads to like get the workflow in order and really felt like this was going to happen. And then all of a sudden they found Alan Bell and Alan Bell is a close friend of mine and the guy is a genius. And I'm going to make it very clear that he deserves this job. I don't think I should have gotten it 
everything happened the way that it was supposed to, but that crushed me when I thought I was so close to actually achieving my dream and getting that job and then somebody else got it. And it really, really hit me hard, but I started to think, all right, well, what is it that's out there? What, what can I do now? How can I proceed forwards? And I started making the realization that there weren't a lot of films being made anymore that I wanted to edit. Because I was really into the 500 Days of Summer type films that were coming out five or 10 years ago. There's this great resurgence of independent film and like really good, decent budget independent films that you can make a living editing. Nowadays, you're either editing something with a budget of $100,000 or $100 million. So the middle ground is gone. And I started to see that coming. And I said, all right, even if I do find another feature job, I'm looking at all the things that are out there, most of which I probably can't get anyway, but I kind of don't want to do that. And I said, well, what is it that I want to do? Well, what I do all day long when I have free time is I watch serialized TV shows. At the time, I loved 24. I was totally addicted to it. I was watching The Sopranos. I think Breaking Bad, maybe, no, I don't think Breaking Bad had come out yet, but I was just watching all of these great dramatic TV shows and I said, I love doing character dramas. That's what I want to do and there aren't a lot of movies out there. I want to work in television. And everybody started telling me the same thing. Well, nobody that works in features works in TV and vice versa. They don't cross over their different skill sets. And I said, I don't accept that. So I made my intention very clear that I wanted to work in television. And one of the first things I did is I started reaching out to people that could get me connections in television. One of them happened to be the co-producer of 24. And I sat down with him for a day and got to do a set visit and got to visit all the editors and talk to the assistants and just get a sense of here's how a TV show works on, at a high network level. And I said, yes, this is exactly what I want. And it took me a while to get there, but it was setting my intention, which had already changed and veered off quite a bit from the intention I had set just a few years before. But once I had set it, I started moving towards it. And that's why I want to make sure people understand that it's not like you're stuck on the one thing you choose. Just don't go out without having some form of focus or being specific, because then you're going to get stuck somewhere where you're climbing a ladder and saying, I just don't want to be here at all. Because I have so many friends that are now in a place where like they're working at a trailer job where they and I worked together 10 years ago. They're saying, God, I wish I had just quit and taken an independent feature like you did because I would love to be doing what you're doing now. But I played the long game, not the short game. Mm -hmm. Well, so there's absolutely a couple of things in there. But one thing that I think that you just did is give your own personal spin or the story into what in essence was exactly what I said is you kind of figure out a five-year thing but then figure out a one-year thing and then a six-month thing and then revisit it periodically say what you're doing that's that's almost precisely what you did and you figured out what you needed to do in order to get to that six month which would lead you to a one year which would lead you to the five year and and by the way as a subset to that I will say that anytime anybody says people don't make this, people don't do this, it's impossible. That's what you call BS and you just kind of sort of that's not helpful. What is helpful is, is saying in order to do this transition, what do you need to do in order to get there? So everything needs to be proactive as opposed to cut off the knees. And that I do think that one of the things that uh, that you're talking about with your own 
story there uh, is that at every step along the way, you kept on reevaluating things. And your own personal thing was you were, re, you, you were reevaluating the market. You were reevaluating um, uh, what your own personal desires were in relationship to those markets, which, by the way, are those three circles. And then you were creating an action plan based on that. And all of those steps, I think, are super important in order to move forward. You need to kind of be realistic. This is, this is what um, I mean when I was saying Stephen Mead's uh, tornado technique, where you decided it's not just I want to edit something for a studio. It was I want to edit something that's character-driven, and then you go, okay, so what is that? And then you found the what is that, the answer to the what is it. Um, so by asking yourself some deep questions about those things, you really got to test what sort of things you would be comfortable doing and what sort of things you were not going to be comfortable doing. That's that third circle. And, and to me, that's super important. Yeah, and when I look back at the path that I've had so far, this happens all the time where they'll look me up on IMDb and they'll say, how in the world did you get on Empire? This doesn't make any sense at all. I've only been on two TV shows and they look at all the independent films. They're like, wait a second, you worked on A Dennis the Menace Christmas, which was straight to DVD for Warner Brothers. You have a couple of indie films that never even got distribution. Like, how does this work? But I was always, again, very intentional that to me, that was a learning process. It was me developing the skill set of being a storyteller. And I made a very conscious decision very early in my career where I said that the two general paths that I can see to get where I want are number one, being an assistant for a decade and maybe working on bigger films and going the assistant route and then eventually you get discovered and get noticed or I can just cut. And I, that's the decision I made very clearly is that I was just going to edit, but that meant that I didn't get paid any money for a really, really, really long time. Mm -hmm. But to me, it was the education that I was getting and it was the networking that I was building. And it was the connections that I got because of that process, because I was proving to people that I could be an editor. Now I'm 35 years old, but I have 15 years of editing credits. Mm -hmm. And there are very few people that are my age that have a 15-year resume where all it says is editor, 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 because most people, they get to my age and that's where they start to make the transition from assistant to editing. And all I have are editing credits, even though most of them completely and totally suck, it doesn't matter. I was cutting story. I was solving problems. And there's nothing that makes you a better editor than editing crap. You want to be great at storytelling, edit horribly directed movies. That will make you a good editor. And I did that for years. So, so here's um, – I, I think that that's a real viable path. There's other viable paths also. And let's, and let's also remember that the goal of the high-end dramatic storytelling is not the only goal out there. So – some people, and this happens all the time at USC because we have a very strong documentary department. Uh, some people want to do narratives in a documentary form rather than in a fiction form. Other people are super, super interested in fashion video because that's where they live as people. And I don't actually put value judgments on any of that. The only value judgment I put on any of those things are when you say you're interested in something, but that's not really what you're interested in because you're too embarrassed or not aware enough to say, no, I'm really interested in doing 
uh, wedding and event videos because no one here at school likes them. So I just think that you determine paths, you determine things, and you try them out. You know what? Maybe you change your mind in 6, 12, 18, 24 months. Who cares? It's like, it's okay to do that. I know that I've moved through so many different types of films and other projects that I've done in my life. So, uh, and, and I think that's made me to a large degree a better um, editor because I've done many, many different things. So I just think it needs some aspect of being self-aware and, as you put it, being brave. So those are two large things. And when you figure out the plan, so to speak, uh, when you kind of figure out the circles, then comes the reality of how do I get there. So I need to meet 20 assistant editors between now and six months from now. And after each of those meetings... Uh, I need to get two additional names and meet them for coffee or whatever you want to do. Uh, and, and by the way, implicit in what I just said also has to do with being realistic about who the people are who you should be meeting and who you can meet. If you like the types of TV that Vince Gilligan does and his editors, you know, maybe you want to meet Kelly Dixon, but maybe you want to meet Kelly's assistant, first if if your path is going to be assistant and moving up because those are the people who are doing the hiring so really target those 20 people those 30 people and expand your circle in that way which sort of leads into a discussion about how you maneuver through this in a social way. Right. I, I will say that it's a really good thing that I didn't listen to you or this podcast 15 years ago because your advice is spot on, which is that you need to be realistic about who to reach out to. I'm going to give you a short list of some of the people that I reached out to. Mm -hmm. Dodie Dorn, mm -hmm. Walter Murch, Pietro Scalia, Hughes Winborn, mm -hmm. Thelma Schoonmaker, Ann Coates, I know there's a few others, but those are the big ones. And you really don't get much bigger legends in our industry than those names. And just for a point of reference, because of the outreach that I did, and this was complete cold outreach, writing letters, writing, it wasn't even emails really, it was literally handwritten letters. I've been very good friends with Dodie Dorn for 13 years now. Um, I'm in contact with Walter Murch and have been in the past. I had lunch with Ann Coates and I got to sit in for an afternoon in her edit suite. Um, I did not hear back from Thelma or Pietro, but I very much still intend to make that connection eventually. But you're right, you do have to have some sense of being realistic. It's just something I've never been good at. Well, Ed, you know, I want to say that it doesn't mean you don't reach out to those people because one of the things that I talk to my students about is determining what your network is. And um, at one point I was looking to change my agent and one of the agents who I interviewed gave me a homework assignment and said, let's say that I told you that so-and-so was directing a film. You go home now and come up with a list of all the people who you know who could get you to that director. And what he was really trying to do is figure out how clever I was about um, building a network. So some of the valid answers there are, oh, you know what, my daughter plays in the same softball league as so-and-so's uh, son. You know, my dentist also treats so-and-so. So if your dentist treats Michael Kahn 
and you want to meet Michael Kahn, maybe that's an entree. But you know Michael's going to kick you down to his assistant at a certain point. So whatever device you'd need to get to the people who could really relate to what you want and really relate to where you are, that's what I'm talking about. So maybe you find out who the assistants are in Breaking Bad and that's who you go to. But maybe if you have a better access to Kelly Dixon... So you try there and let her kick you down to the assistant. It's actually funny that you brought up getting kicked down to Michael Kahn's assistant because I forgot to add a name to the list of people I've reached out to and had lunch with. Billy Goldberg is another, another one of the people that I reached out to was able to get to him, and I ended up spending an afternoon in his edit suite. And for those that don't know, he did Zero Dark Thirty and won the Oscar for Argo. And he's a pretty big name in editing. And these are the types of people that I had reached out to, but I also was reaching out to as many people as possible. And this, I th- we've now completely and firmly dove in or dived, whatever the word is. I'm an editor, and I'm, I'm, you know, not so good with the grammar. <laughs> Deeped in. But we're now, we're firmly into number two. Number one of the skill sets we're talking about that we're distilling out of this process is setting an intention and purpose and finding your direction. The second skill set is you have to build a network of people because there's nothing that drives me more crazy than the people that say, oh, well, it's all about luck. And then it's the same people that say, ah, it's all about who you know. Well, guess what? Developing a network is a skill set no different than going on lynda.com and learning how to use Adobe premiere. It's just something that people don't feel as a skill set. It's just either given to them or it's not given to them. It is such an important skill set. You're absolutely right. I drove across the country 2,500 miles six days after I graduated from college. I had one college friend that had just moved two months before. I slept on his floor in his hallway for two weeks and I had zero contacts, but I made it a full-time job to get to know people so they knew me because if people don't know who you are, you're never going to make it. Mm -hmm. So what that leads to is I, I think it's the absolute fact that if you graduate and you're looking for work, that is your job for a while. So it may not pay some of the bills, so maybe you have to do something else at the same time. But the people who are most successful at getting something that they like relatively, I won't say easily or quickly, but that relative to other people, are the ones who consider it a job looking for work. And that's what they do. They start before they graduate. They start before they're in desperate need. They spend four to five hours a day looking at all the websites, reading the Editor's Guild magazine, the Ace magazine, looking for names of assistant editors, looking for all the names, scouring IMDb, uh, saying, I like these shows, just like you did. You identified the shows you liked and the people who worked on them. So these are the kinds of things. So let's say you like doing commercials, finding out who works on them, maybe a different set of resources, but that's your job. So you're going to spend five, six hours a day combing Post Magazine and, and different online resources to find out who edited this and who was the assistant on it and trying to figure out how to get in touch with them. So that's your job. And if you can do that and say, in six months, I'm going to meet these 20 people, And then you work hard to meet those 20 people and then once again ask for at least two references or two additional people to contact with each of those 20. You will build that network. That's one of the important ways of doing it in addition to all the stuff that I never had to do when I was coming up because back then 
We editors stayed in our small rooms, in our buildings, and if we were good at what we did, we gradually moved up. Those days are gone. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And what, it's funny that you brought up IMDb because I just had all of these crazy mental flashbacks because this isn't something I do anymore. But IMDb was like a video game to me <laughs> where I was literally unemployed and saying, I don't even know where my next job is coming from. And there were times where I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to cover my basic living expenses. Mm -hmm. But I was spending $100 a year on IMDb Pro and I would just make connections all day long. I would say- Probably one of the best investments you oh, made. Oh, absolutely. I but I would just research over and over. I would say, oh, there's a project that's you know available. I, was, I subscribed to Below the Line and I've subscribed to like three or four other job sites where they would just send you emails every day with all the films that were in in production or pre-production looking for a crew. And it's almost impossible to find editing work that way just to, as an aside, because they're really just looking for crew members and it's very hard to cold submit to try and get editing work because usually that happens through a director or producer and not these crew call services. But I was spending money on all of them and I would just start cross-referencing everything and saying, all right, well, I know this person and this person's on that show and this person knows them and oh, they're connected to this project. And the great thing about IMDb and I don't know if it still does this, I'm assuming it does, but you can click on any project and it will give you a list of people that are connected and say, you worked with this person in this project, or you worked with this person who worked with this person who worked on this project, and it now does the work for you. And I would just create all of these matrices of like, who are all the people that I can contact and reach out to? And it is a huge job and it is just painstaking and a really thankless job until you make that one random connection that gets you to another random connection and then the seed is planted and all of a sudden the tree starts to grow. And when I was doing all of this, and again, I just, it just pains me to say this, there was no Twitter and no Facebook. They hadn't really come about yet. Yes, they were invented. I know for anybody out there, oh, they existed, but they weren't in the mainstream and nobody used them, so you couldn't connect. It is so infinitely easier to reach out to people that you admire or you want to connect with than it was 10 years ago because all you really had was email and people's email addresses aren't public. But with Twitter and Facebook, they kind of are because you can just go and find them and send them a message. And that's how I found Burn Notice is Facebook had come out and my wife had showed it to me. It's like, oh, look, you can post a picture and all this. And I'm like, I would never use that. Like, there's no way, I swear, I will never, ever be on Facebook. And anybody that knows me now knows how pretty ridiculous that is because I'm a social media whore. But I said I was never gonna be on Facebook, but then I started to think about it. And I said, wait a second. I'm not going to worry about doing this to post pictures of going out with my friends or, you know, sending stuff to my mom. I'm going to see if I can use this as a networking tool. And that was where I started to make the connections that started to break me into the bigger jobs. And that's how I ended up getting the job on Burn Notice was through Facebook. But those are the tools that people really need to be looking at. But if you're somebody that's a recent graduate saying, well, how is Twitter going to help me get a job? It's probably not going to get you a job, but it's going to build you a connection with one person. And let's say you send somebody four or five Twitter messages and all of a sudden you meet them in an event and you walk up to them afterwards and you're like, hey, you know, my name is Chris, right? So my name is Chris and, you know, I've been tweeting you and, you know, big admire your work. And they're like, oh yeah, no, I, I think I remember seeing your face in a couple of tweets. Hey, how are you? Right? That connection is already made. 
Now you're in their psyche and they're thinking, well, this isn't just you know some guy that's trying to get something from me. This is a relationship that I can build and I can help them out. That's where it starts to grow, but it's a very, very long process, but it can very easily be done if you're patient and you know how to do it the right way. So you said something I think that's really important, which is I don't want anything from you. And listen, everybody knows that you make connections in this business and you hope that they lead to something, right? You hope that they do, uh, you end up work. But like, I, I almost never get work from expected places. You get it from unexpected places and that's because two people who you knew separately meet and someone says, hey, you know, I'm producing something and I'm looking for an editor. Oh, I just was talking with Norman the other day and uh, uh, so... It's the, the web, and I don't mean that in the internet sort of way. It's kind of the web of connections that you build. It's actually one of the things that I think is one of the most valuable aspects of a film school is it, is it creates a group of people who you know you can trust because, honestly, making a movie is so bloody hard. Making any project like this is so bloody hard that what you want are people who you know you're going to be able to work with. So you're trying to build that trust. And if you've worked with them before, that's the best way. So working at film school, hey, I'm not an idiot. Uh, I got things done uh, for you, and we really enjoyed working together. Uh, yeah, that's true. I did. They're going to remember you. So in the absence of that, what you're looking to do is figure out ways that you can become valuable uh, uh, without, hey, I'll help you on A, B, and C. I'll help you with something. Uh, uh, and I'm not asking for anything in return. Oh, that person was valuable for me. Whether that's I'm looking for uh, a one-month apartment to stay somewhere or you helped me with a bar mitzvah video or uh, you helped organize footage that came in. Whatever it is, you become valuable to someone. And then they remember that. And if you have enough of those connections, if four people think that and two of them meet, then you've got a job coming. You've got a job offer. So it really is extending the circle of people who know they can trust you. And that's done in a million different ways. Uh, and, and you'll figure out your own ways. Yeah, the key component is that you have to put yourself out there first or people aren't going to know that that opportunity is available. Absolutely. And my favorite story of all time, and this is a story that involves me, so maybe that's why it's my favorite story. I don't know, but I just – there's something so inspirational about this story. Um, it must have been two or three years ago now. Um, I was at Lassie Pug, the Los Angeles Creative Pro user group. And Michael Horton does this great thing where he has this break, where he asks people to come up if they want to talk about a project or they want to mention that they're looking for work, whatever it is. He gets the people, announcements. Yeah, the, thank the you, the announcements. And they yes. go up and they'll, they'll talk about whatever it is that's going on. And what usually happens, and this to me is the wrong way to do it, is people will stand up in there and say, hey, my name is Joe. Um, you know, I've been, you know, having some trouble for a while, but I'm looking for work. So if anybody out there has got any work, let me know, right? Nobody's going to contact you or give you work. 
because you're not being specific. And you, it's almost like standing in, at, on a stage in front of a bunch of women saying, hey, so I haven't had a date for a while. If anybody's out there looking for a date, I could really use one. Like you reek of desperation. But <laughs> if you are specific and you are intentional and you're motivated, people will respond. So two years ago, this young woman got up in front of the stage. She was Chinese. She was born and raised in China, in Shanghai. And she had just been out here for a couple of years. And she said, you know, my, my name is, uh, I won't use her name because um, I don't have her permission to, but she said, you know, I'm, I'm new to Los Angeles. She had a very thick accent. You could understand her, but you could see that she wasn't like, you know, Chinese American, she's Chinese. And she said, I, you know, I'm very, very interested in learning to be an editor. I have experience, but I'm trying to figure out how to make it in the United States. I'm very interested in trailer editing. And there's a company called Mark Woolen and Associates. They make really, really great trailers. If there's anybody out there that knows anybody at Mark Woolen and Associates, I'm trying to get a hold of them because I want to work on their trailers. You can't be more specific than that. And guess what? There was somebody in the audience that knew somebody that worked for Mark Woolen and Associates. And it was this guy. So I went up to her during the break and I said, listen, I really admire that you were able to stand up in a group around a bunch of people that most likely have more experience than you. It's very intimidating. You're from another country. So I appreciate that. And guess what? I know somebody that works at Mark Woolen and Associates. I'd be happy to connect you via email. I connected them via email. I don't even really know what happened from it. But because of that, she started emailing me and she had sent me a couple of links to small things that she had done and her work was impressive. So guess what came my way shortly after? I was asked to do a re-edit on a two-hour 3D concert film that was in Chinese. So guess who the first person was that I called and said, I have a massive amount of footage that I need to organize and I don't understand anything that anybody is saying. She put her intention out there. It connected with me. We found each other. And I have now thrown her thousands of dollars of assistant work and editing work because she does great work time after time. But she put herself out there and she was very specific about her intention. I love her story and I love telling it. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. I, I think that there's so much 
of what you said in that story that overlaps what we've been talking about in terms of the specificity. This is Stephen Mead all over again. Um, he takes one step further where that he says, uh, I'm looking to be introduced to people like so-and-so over in Mark Wallen or whatever, uh, but that by and large, it's exactly what you're talking about and that uh, not to be general about it, to take, to be brave and to stamp in front of people and say the things that you need, but also take ownership of the things that you do and be good at it. So all of these things are important. And she did it at a Lassie Pug meeting. So in, I guarantee you that of the listeners for your podcast here, many of them who don't live in Los Angeles still live in places where there are like-minded people, there are user groups, there are people who they can connect to. If that's not the case, there's still Creative Cow newsletter. There's still all of these boards in different places where if you become someone who helps without expectation of anything in return, uh, people will know that. They'll remember you as that area expert. And when they need something, they will come to you. So I, I think that there's so much of this um, broadening your network, whether it's in-person user groups, and I think that's important, whether it's online user groups, whether it's Twitter. I've gotten jobs through Twitter, so those do exist. But it, but it has to do with, once again, helping people to feel comfortable with who you are and what you could bring to something uh, a project that they need something on. Yeah, absolutely. And to, for anybody to say, oh, well, I don't live in Los Angeles and I don't have the Creative Pro user group and there just isn't, I just don't have the community where I am, that excuse is no longer valid in the 21st no century. No longer valid. No, I mean, right. I, I right now in, in my quest for just constant personal development, I'm a personal development junkie. I belong to like three different worldwide groups where I'm learning specific skill sets. One of them, for example, is productivity. I belong to a closed group of, uh, it's like a mastermind group of people that are really focused on how to enhance productivity and get more done in less time. I've never met any of them in person and half of them are in Thailand. Mm -hmm. Right. But we, you can do video conferences. You can go on Facebook. Like I feel like I know these guys by first name. And if I met him in person, I would give him a giant hug. That's networking. Like it doesn't have to just be going out in person, but if you have the opportunity in person is still the best. And I think we've done a good job of this, but I want to make sure it's not, we're giving people the tactics of saying, well, you should be using Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and user groups. Like those are great, but it's about the idea of putting yourself out there, planting seeds and making sure people know that you exist. Because if people don't know you exist, it doesn't matter how good your skill set is, they can't hire you, which now will take us into the third component of all of this, which is developing your skill sets and honing your craft. Because if you have the best intentions in the world and everybody important on the planet knows that you exist, but you suck at what you do, you're not going to get hired. So this is the third component of what's so important is making sure that you are honing that skill set, you're sharpening your axe, and you're really working on your craft. And this to me is one of those big questions that comes out of film school or any other trade when you come into film is what should I actually be doing? This is where you're really going to shine on this show and you've already completely stolen the show, but this one you're really going to hit the nail on the head because there are so many film school students that come out and they say, well, I, I'm trying to find a job as an editor, right? They say, well, you're, you're working on Empire. Maybe I can find something, you know, a little bit less. I'm like, you came out of school. You're not going to be an editor, 
you need to understand that you're most likely going to be a post PA or you're going to be an assistant editor first, and you're going to be doing it for years. So in your experience, the kids that are just about to graduate or that have graduated, what are the skill sets that, and this goes back to kind of our first conversation too, but what are the immediate skill sets that you really feel are going to help propel people forwards and get them out of the mindset of, oh, well, I've got my USC film degree, so I have to be an editor right out of college or right out of AFI, and it's, that's just not the way that it works. So where do people start if they want to hone their craft, and what skills do they actually focus on that are very concrete? So first, let me say that the advantage of those three overlapping circle approach is it forces you to identify what your skills are. Uh, and taking a personal inventory of what they are is really, really important. And then the second circle is taking an inventory of what the employer needs in terms of skills. If you find, like I said, that there's very little overlap, then one of the most important things that I think you can do, actually, I think this is important no matter which way you look at it, no matter what you're doing, whether you're, there's a lot of overlap or not, is uh, you need to do a lot of interviews that are not about getting a job. You need to do a lot of informational interviews. You need to meet people. You know, like we said before we start rolling, uh, hey, take me, uh, you know, I'll take you out for coffee kind of thing, where you basically say to them, hey, listen, uh, I'm just about to graduate from school. And by the way, you should absolutely do this before you graduate. Just like it's always easy to look for jobs when you've got a job. Same thing that when you're in school or when you're doing something, it's a lot easier to do that. So I'm about to graduate. These are the kind of things that I like. You are in a position, let's say you're talking to an assistant editor. You are doing something that I would love to be doing in a couple of years. So you've seen my resume. Here it is. What are the things that I'm missing here that you think I need to know in order to be where you are in two, three years? And it's that sort of discussion that will give you the information that you need in order to identify holes in your skill set. That's going to be different depending on what, you're, what kind of jobs you're looking for. It's not always going to be about, uh, oh, everybody needs to know after effects. That's almost like ground zero. Of course they do. But that may not be as important in some places as others. So you just do a ton of interviews and find out what's missing in it. And then identify those skills and do them. Fill them. You go, you mentioned lynda.com. There's lots of places uh, where that you can fill. You can do a, a course at a community college locally to help fill some of that. You can volunteer to work for someone at a TV station that could maybe fill in some, some skills that you're missing. But work at getting those skills. But you can't do that until you know what skills you're missing. So this is like no school, not even USC, not NYU, not AFI, UCLA, none of the top film schools can't give you everything, nor should we. 
I think that one of our jobs at USC, like I said, is to help you understand storytelling and all of that because the technical skills are easier to pick up on a certain level. Um, so I think that what you want to find out is how to – what you want to know is how to be realistic about what you know and don't know and then look to fill in those skills. Well, and I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said that it's easier to pick up the technical skills. If I went to a trade school and I learned Avid and Final Cut and After Effects inside out and I didn't have the background in story, I couldn't have graduated and said, oh, well, I've got this great technical background. Now I'm going to start watching Eisenstein movies and writing papers on them. Right. Nobody's going to do that. Right. Plus, right? plus you'd be ready to be employed in the year 2012. Exactly. Right? So, so that you're not really developing the skills that someone's going to need in two years from now or one year from now. What you've developed are skills, yesterday's skills. So yes, absolutely. Looking at Eisenstein, looking at just just being around playing, edit, 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 edit. You said that's absolutely right. But edit with someone who can give you good feedback. Absolutely. So th those are things that will help build your editing skills while you can build assistance skills at the same time. And I think that another place that this can go as well is, and this could easily be a full hour-long podcast, and I have no intention of doing that to you, um, <laughs> but it brings up the idea, and this is a very common question, should I take free work, right? And I took a lot of free work, some of which I shouldn't have, most of which I'm very glad that I did because I looked at it as education. It's something that my father just beat into me over and over again. Whenever something bad would happen to me or I had an experience or I made a stupid decision and it didn't come out well, he's like, well, you know what? You just got a great education. And that is something that stuck with me. And I just looked at it as, all right, well, I just had three months of hell editing a really bad independent feature film with people that I didn't like that didn't pay me. But then I think, do you realize how much better I am at working in the room with people under high levels of stress and staying calm and be able to manage expectations because I've been through horrible producer boot camp, right? Because of that, I'm able to manage a room of people so much more at the level I'm at now because I've been through the weeds and I've dealt with really demanding people with really horrible expectations. And then I'll sit in a room with you know a huge name and it's like, well, I've kind of been there, done that, so this doesn't rattle me. And that's a very hireable skill, but it's not the kind of thing that people will look at. They'll say, oh, well, they're not paying me anything and they don't even have really nice computers and they're working on an old version of Final Cut Pro. Like, there's no opportunity here. But a huge part of making in this industry is having the social skills and the psychological skills to be able to manage people. And I started realizing that even these horrible, horrible experiences that I went through on these crappy projects, those were great educations because I learned how to deal with difficult people. And that has made me that much more marketable because everybody that I work with, they say, God, this has just been one of the most pleasant experiences I've ever had editing something. And I didn't even like this episode, but this is just so much fun. And a lot of that comes from my ability to manage people because of the horrible experiences I've been through, which made the, the free work actually incredibly valuable. Pay off, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's, if you don't learn on a job, some, if you don't learn something on a job, then that job, uh, it's not the job is creating that problem. It's you've got a problem because you're not open to learning on it. But let's also face it that we spend a lot of our careers moving towards a place where we can have better choices for ourselves. And 
that's going to change. When I was an assistant editor, I moved up to the place where I was able to choose the jobs and the people who I wanted to work with. But then when I made the move to music editor, I had to backtrack on some of that. I didn't have as many choices. Then I got better at that. And I got to a place where I could make choices. Then when I moved into picture editing, once again, I had to take a step back. I moved from New York out to L.A. I had to take a step back. So at every point along the way, you have to kind of say, what sort of choices am I making? Uh, and that uh, can I make this choice? Should I make the choice to take this because it will be more valuable for me in the long run in terms of people who I meet rather than the immediate gain? And hopefully in another two years, four years, five years, you get to the point where you wouldn't take that job anymore because you have more choices. So I'm very reticent to kind of make a pronouncement that sounds like, hey, guys, I know you're just starting out, but you really have to, and then ABCD. It's you will know when you've got choices and when you don't. And if what's important to you and your personal needs are, you got that monthly rent check that you have to pay, then maybe you make some choices that you wouldn't make otherwise, but that hopefully you're not trapped into those things because every six months you're looking at your goals again and saying, okay, now I had that terrible job with the terrible producer. What can I make of that? And where do I go in the next six months? So this is so malleable. It changes all the time. There's no embarrassment in saying, here I am and I feel differently than I did six months ago. That's growth. That's good. That's wonderful. So to be able to look at where you are in some clear way in your career at this moment in time to see where that might lead in six months, 12 months, and five years down the line and to see what you need to do in order to get to those places and have people know that that's where you want to work with. That, to me, is how you develop skills because you say, I need to do X, Y, and Z. I know I'm doing a lot of numbers and letters, but I need to do this in order to push myself a little bit forward to the place where I have more choices, the place where I can kind of get what I want. Uh, and just be conscious of it, man. That's, I think, one of the biggest things. Just make, make decisions consciously rather than having them made for you. Right. And the, as much as uh, I know that you probably want to get off this, I have two more things that I want to get to. And then I promise I will let you leave and I'll let everybody go back to their life. Um, That's right. Well, when this is edited down, it's just going to be 12 minutes of valuable information, right? Exactly. And then I'll just, I'll make it a bonus download for the other hour and 54 <laughs> minutes or whatever it is. Um, but the, the two things that I, that really came up in my mind right now, the first of which is something that I knew, but was really articulated to me until I had this conversation with Alan Bell is that kind of going back to the idea of free work, but you know, whether or not you're getting the education from it, he said that if you really want to be able to be in a position to make the choices, like you're saying, choices are not something that are just going to come 15 or 20 years down the line once you've made it. Those choices can be made very early on if you're very, very good about being conscious of your finances. And what Alan said is the reason that he had the freedom to, to have the career he did is that he saved as much money as he could so he could take free work. And he's a good example of it, but somebody that's an even better example is going back again to my friendship with Dodie Dorn. Dodie was a very high profile sound editor, sound mixer, sound supervisor, actually ran her own company and then decided one day, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to edit. 
And she was working on films for James Cameron. Like she did the sound work on The Abyss, which is some of the most amazing sound in the history of cinema. She couldn't find work to save her life to edit because nobody thought she could do it. So she started working for free at the bottom, but because she was fiscally responsible, she had choices. And that is something that if you... As soon as you get out into the world and you say, well, I'm going to, you know, get this car and I'm going to, you know, rent a nice apartment and have all these things. Guess what? Now you have to take that job at the reality company or at MTV or wherever, even if what you want to do is scripted because you just need the money. You're not putting yourself in the position to say, you know what? I want to take eight months off and I want to edit a feature film for 60 hours a week and get paid nothing, which is something that I did. I took eight months of my life and I literally didn't get a penny, but I was saving every dollar that I earned while I was editing trailers and I was making really good money editing trailers, but I stashed it all away and I spent eight months editing a feature film for nothing that to this day still has no distribution. But guess who the producer of that film was? The producer that did 500 Days of Summer. So there's that payoff, right? And the last story that I want to leave people well, with- Well, let me, let me add another name to that list. So Sally Mankey- gave some advice at an edit fest several years ago while she was still with us, where she said that the thing that enabled her to work on Reservoir Dogs was that she kept her monthly expenses down to such a low degree, to such a low number, that she had choices, which is exactly what you're saying. And that that's clearly she didn't go to an expensive film school, but that those are the kinds of uh, choices that you can make. And maybe that means you don't go to Burning Man that year, but that uh, you, you balance it against other things that you want. So I think you're exactly right. How do you create an atmosphere where you can then have choices? And the, the other thing that you said uh, a few minutes back when I, where I said I had two more things that I really want to bring up is this idea of sometimes you have to take the step backwards to move forwards or even make a lateral move. Um, and I'm as type A and ambitious and intention-driven as anybody that I know. And it was always about moving forwards, moving forwards. And I can't take a step backwards and I can't take a lateral move and push, push, push. That's always been my personality. And as a tangent, just look at all the posts that I've written about burnout. Those two things are connected. Yeah. Um, but anyway, one of the decisions that I made or that I came to really wasn't even by choice is that after I had done four years of burn notice, I couldn't find work. That really surprised me. And I think maybe it's because I got comfortable and I stopped networking and I was like, oh, I'm in TV now and I work on a USA TV show, right? So everybody's going to want me, which obviously wasn't the case. And I knew it wasn't the case, but I just started to get relaxed and kind of stopped the networking for a while. And the only job that I could find was on a low budget ABC medical drama called Black Box. And I really wrestled with this because I knew that it didn't take me towards my goal of doing the kinds of shows that I wanted to do because it was a medical procedural. It really wasn't the kind of show that I would ever watch. I would not be a fan of a show like that. I don't watch those types of shows. And it's not really something that I saw creatively challenging. But I looked at the people that were involved and I said, you know what? This is probably just going to be a seven or an eight month job. It's going to pay my regular wage. So I'm going to be able to support my family. I've got two young kids. So I do have to make decisions based on other people and not just what I really want to do. But I said, you know what? This is a good opportunity to meet new people because I have one web of connections in the world of scripted television. And that's people that work on burn notice. Those are the only connections that I had. They're great connections, but that's it. So I said, you know what? 
let me just give this a year or seven months or whatever it was. And I'm just going to put my best foot forward, even though it's not what I want to do. And maybe I can build a connection or two. And I could have gone into it saying, ah, this is just a paycheck and I don't really care. And I'm just going to, and there are a lot of people that do that when they're on a show they don't like, they just kind of phone it in. But where this all wraps up, when people kind of look at the trajectory of my story of where I started and how I got here now, guess who the showrunner of Blackbox was? Eileen Chicken. Guess who Eileen Chicken is? The showrunner of Empire. So when she left Black Box and went to Empire, I got a phone call and she said, hey, guess what? You're coming to Empire with me. And my response was, what's Empire? I had no <laughs> idea what she was talking about. She's like, you have to come to the show. This is perfect for you. It has your skill set. It's action. It's comedy. It's got music. You've worked on Glee. So like, there, it's, a, it's a very unique skill set to be able to work on a show like Empire where you have to be genre agnostic. You can't just have been in one box for 15 or 20 years and be able to take on a show like Empire. And because I had spent so many years being genre agnostic, I finally had something that was a fit. But it was because of all of those choices that I made over and over and over, sometimes lateral moves, sometimes steps backwards that got me where I am, but people never see that. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's really why I wanted to do this podcast. It's not about sharing my story. I've talked about this on panels and whatnot, but I really want to be able to distill it down into something that's actionable for younger people. Cause there's one thing that's very frustrating for me is when I'll go to a panel or a, an event like Edit Fest, and some young person, really ambitious, really excited, will say, "Well, can you just, you know, kind of give me some answer to kind of help me understand how you do what you do and how you got started?" And the answer is, "Well, I just kind of do it. I'm sorry, right?" And that answer drives me crazy because there's nothing that you can take away from it and learn. And it's just to me, it's kind of lazy that you can't find a way to distill it and break it down in a way that somebody else can use it. And that's what I want this to be, is I want somebody to say, oh my God, like I'm looking at the story, but I can do all of these things, right? So that's really what this has been all about. To everybody that's never heard of me before, oh, he's an overnight success and he works on Empire, but you don't realize all of the very, very conscious choices and sacrifices that come to get to this point. What I want is for people to hear those and say, oh, I can do this too, right? Because there's nothing special about me. I grew up on a farm in a tiny community in northern Wisconsin of 400 people. The nearest stoplight was literally 45 minutes away from my house. Well, that so, makes you special, Zach. I don't know anyone else who grew up on a farm. So that is special. But the point is there's no reason on earth that I should have been able to get where I am. But what I'm hoping is that people see the types of choices and the types of decisions that I made that other people have made through these stories and could say, I can do that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what you were talking about, in my mind, when you talked about Black Box and you talked about the choices you made there, has to do with that third circle I was talking about, what your personal needs were. So one of your personal needs was to be working and to have some income, okay? Nothing embarrassing about that at all. But the other personal need was to be working comfortably in a way that fed your creative soul to some degree, but also working with people who you like working with, working in a situation that was good for you. Um, and if we are to be healthy, and this fits in actually with a lot of the fitness and post philosophy, is if we are to be good at what we do and happy at what we do, I think we really need to acknowledge what that third circle is, the things that are important to us, what our needs are, not just our employer's needs, but what our needs are. 
and then make some of our decisions to go do something based on that. And then who knows where it's going to lead? It usually leads to someplace good, but that at least to be able to say, I want something where I can be home at eight o'clock or, or I can have a couple of hours in the morning so I could go to my kid's recital at school or I can take care of uh, whatever other uh, issues are important to me. If those become priorities and you're aware of them, then you will be happier at what you do. You'll be better at what you do, assuming you're good. You'll be better at what you do and that the people who are employing you We'll see that, feel that, know that, and that's like a lifelong connection. So I think that we ignore that third circle at our peril. And I think you very correctly have been making that a larger part of the three circles. I don't think I could have plugged fitness and post any better than that. <laughs> I mean, I was I was veering in that direction, but you you took it without me even having to, to lead it there. Is that yes, that is that is the intent of all of this, and I, I'd never really so distinctly said it in such a way. But yeah, it's all about filling that third circle, and not filling that third circle is what's gotten us into the epidemic that we're in now of overworked hours and insane deadlines and people burning out left and right and people literally going to the hospital in ambulances because of the stress of this job. I mean, I know people that that's happened to personally um, and have heard stories about people literally collapsing and dying at their desk because of the hours and the health conditions. It's because people are not paying attention to that third circle. And that's the final reason that I was so excited about being able to do this show and get it in front of young people is I want them to understand now when they're young, that is the time to start developing developing the habits and the systems to make sure that this business does not break you down. Because I'll link to a blog post that I wrote. It's called, um, I was a 25-year-old curmudgeon. It's actually one of the first things I wrote when Fitness and Post started. I was 25 years old and I was burned out and I felt like I was 100 because of all the hours that I worked. And I was in martial arts for 10 years and I practiced yoga and I did weightlifting and I played football and baseball. I was an athlete and it took me two whole years of this industry before it literally just about killed me because all I was focused on was the prize and getting the credits and getting the experience and I took my health for granted and it almost killed me, literally. And I wanna get the idea into people at a very, very young age that this stuff needs to be a part of your routine and a part of your third circle for the long term or you're not going to end up getting to the goal that you want to get to anyway. Couldn't have said it better. You can't see me, but I'm putting my thumbs up. And I think that in this business, that's what you call a good button. <laughs> well, this was fun. Button or not, this was great fun, Zach. Thank you so much for asking me on. And uh, I just had, I always have a blast talking to you, but now, now I have a blast talking to you on your podcast too. So yes. thank you. Well, thank you. I cannot thank you enough for kind of bringing me into this world of podcasting and education. And you've, you've really found a part of me that was dying to get out by uh, sitting in a room for 80 hours a week and cutting dailies. You've, <laughs> you've, you've just un unearthed this whole other monster. So where anybody anybody that's like, where did this guy come from? You're the one that created the monster. The You're one. the one that's that brought what, him out. So that's, that's clearly what therapy is for. Absolutely. So All right. Well, well, this has been absolutely amazing. And uh, for those that have listened all the 
the way to the end. I commend you on your patience and your resilience and your perseverance. I want you to do one action step and I want you to sit down and I want you to write down your intention and your focus and what you think you want to go towards. And it can be erased. It can be scratched out. It can be deleted, whatever it is, but try to really focus and intention on something that you want to get. And you will be amazed once you start doing that, how things will start to happen and you will get closer towards that goal. Right. And in fact, if I could say that if you don't erase and scratch out, then just like a good editor who thinks their first cut's the perfect one, you're not a good editor. So make sure you scratch and change and and reevaluate what you're doing because it's exactly what you need to do in order to be uh, self-analytical enough to have a successful career. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.